Welcome to Aggravating Circumstances, a true crime podcast. I'm your host, Laura Saremi. This is season two, episode three, Justifiable Homicide. This is an ongoing story. So if you're just getting started, I recommend you hit pause, go back and start with the first episode of this season, and then come back and catch up with us. This podcast does include adult content and is not suitable for all audiences, so please use caution. Police are investigating a bar fight that spilled out into the street. In the end, one person will be left shot to death, another rushed to the hospital with a stab wound. confirm one person was shot and died on scene. Another person was stabbed and was transported to regional hospital in critical condition. On April 12th of 2016, Elisha Baxter was stabbed in the chest. He then shot the person who stabbed him and claimed self-defense. There was a crowd of people standing feet away for this altercation. This crowd was described as seven or eight people in court. And do you know how many of those seven or eight people were interviewed by police to find out what happened? None. Not one. We'll get back to that a little bit later. But I'd like to start today's episode by talking about justifiable homicide. The Oxford Dictionary defines justifiable homicide as the killing of a person in circumstances which allow the act to be regarded in law as without criminal guilt. Those are cases where you're legally innocent as opposed to actually innocent, where you killed someone, but it was considered within the law. We've already mentioned the case of Trayvon Martin, an unarmed black 17-year-old who was followed, confronted, and killed by George Zimmerman, and he was acquitted of any guilt. So that killing was found to be self-defense, what they would call a justifiable homicide. There's also a distinction between justified and what they call excusable, and that's where Perhaps you didn't mean to kill someone, and it's excusable, so you're not criminally liable. And in Florida, things get really strange because they actually have three degrees of murder, first degree, second degree, and third degree. There are only three states that have third degree murder, which I think is similar to manslaughter in a lot of other states. First degree is premeditated, and second degree is strange. So the way Florida talks about second-degree murder, it says, 
In Florida, to prove second-degree murder, it must be proven that the person in question acted, quote, with a depraved mind without regard for human life. The prosecution of second-degree murder when the killing lacked premeditation or planning, but the defendant acted with enmity toward the victim or the two had an ongoing interaction or relationship. Second-degree murder does not need to show intent to kill. You just have to have a depraved mind. What the heck does depraved mind mean? This is going to get really interesting later, and we'll get into it. But let's talk about third-degree murder. Third-degree murder is often called a crime of passion. It's a killing that results from the heat of the moment due to negligence or recklessness. Severe mental and emotional stress are involved, and a case of a cheating spouse is often used as a prime example. This cheating spouse, heat of the moment, crime of passion part is mentioned during Elisha's trial over and over. And the more the prosecution talked about how it's justified to kill your wife's cheating lover, the more offended I became by the whole thing. It's third degree murder. If you kill someone in the heat of passion, but if you've been stabbed in the chest and you're gushing blood and you're chasing someone who is chasing another person that you're trying to defend with the knife, that's not heat of the moment? Really? So we'll, we'll, we'll get into more of that um, in a bit. Let's talk about a couple cases where the defense was that it was a crime of passion. In 2015, 69-year-old James Miller had befriended 32-year-old Daniel Spencer. The two men had bonded over their love of music, and Daniel had invited James over to play guitar. They were playing guitar and drinking when James claimed that younger and stronger Daniel had made a pass at him and then attacked him. So James stabbed him in the back, killing him. In spite of his claim of self-defense, James had no injuries, no self-defense wounds. There was nothing broken in the apartment. There was no indication whatsoever that a struggle had taken place. And this gay panic defense was rather unbelievable in the year 2018, the year that it went to trial. However, the jury found him only guilty of negligent homicide and did not even sentence him to any jail time recommending probation only for stabbing someone in the back, killing them. The judge added the maximum jail time allowed for this sentence of six months. This case made headlines due to the gay panic defense, and advocates believed that that, that, that defense should not be allowed. But it kept James from spending more than six months in prison. A Chicago Tribune article about the acquittal of Joseph Biederman in the murder of Terrence Hauser starts out, how do you stab and slash someone 61 times, not just killing, but slaughtering them, and then walk free? 
That's the lingering question in the wake of the acquittal of Joseph Biederman of Hoffman Estates, who admitted to inflicting numerous fatal wounds on Terrence Hauser during an early morning altercation in March of 2008 in Hauser's apartment in the complex where both men lived. The answer in this case is that you cast yourself as the victim of an attempted homosexual rape. The men met at a tavern before the incident. After the bartender refused to serve Biederman any more alcohol, the two, both drunk, went back to Hauser's apartment. Biederman said after some conversation, he passed out and awoke to find Hauser holding a sword and threatening him to take off his clothes. Biederman's defense attorney said, it's the most bizarre case I've ever been a part of. Biederman claimed that he gained control of a dagger and used it to stab Hauser repeatedly while trying to escape. The prosecutor said that the story doesn't add up. Biederman was larger than Hauser. He was not as drunk as Hauser, and he couldn't possibly have had to stab him 61 times in order to escape. The scene also showed no signs of a life life or death struggle, suggesting that Biederman simply attacked Hauser. In the bloody overkill of the stabbing frenzy, some see the hallmark of gay panic cases, ones in which defendants suggest, sometimes successfully, that homosexual overtures are themselves sufficient provocation for acts of extreme violence. Well, apparently the jury bought it, and uh, Biederman, who murdered Terrence Hauser by stabbing him 61 times, was acquitted. It was a crime of passion, a justifiable homicide. In episode one, we spoke about castle doctrine as it relates to self-defense. Castle doctrine comes from English common law, which basically says your home is your castle and you are allowed to defend yourself, which means Unlike the rest of English common law, which said you had a duty to retreat, meaning that if you were in some kind of confrontation and you could get away, you could, this didn't apply when you were in your home. So castle doctrine says, if I'm in my home and you break in to do something, I do not have to retreat. I'm in my home. And so therefore I can defend myself, which includes the use of lethal self-defense. In the United States, this is very uh, strongly indoctrinated in probably everyone that lives here. Your home is your castle. You don't have to go anywhere. So let's talk about Byron David Smith. Byron David Smith lived in Little Falls, Minnesota, and his home had been broken into. He claimed it had been broken into several times, but when the police looked into this later, there was evidence of one theft that they knew of. On Thanksgiving of 2012, He decided to park his vehicle down the street so that it looked like he wasn't home. He had installed a security system, which took video and audio. He also started a recorder that he had, some kind of recording recording device. And he decided to sit in the basement with a loaded weapon and wait. Well, he wasn't disappointed because two teenagers in the neighborhood... Haley Kiefer and Nicholas Brady, who were 18 and 17, broke into his house. He laid in wait in the basement until Nick came down the stairs, and as soon as he could see his torso, he shot him. He then fell to the bottom of the stairs, and then he shot him in the head, finishing him off. He wrapped his body in a tarp and dragged him off to the side, and then waited for the cousin to come down the stairs and he killed her as well. All of this was caught on 
video and audio from the recording that he had started as well as the security system he had installed. So he claimed Castle Doctrine as his defense. And what's interesting is they said had he shot them initially because he was in his home and feared for his life, he probably would have gotten away with it. If he had just shot them in the torso and then they fell to the bottom of the stairs and he hadn't gone on to do kill shots where he shot them both in the head, they said there's a decent chance that he could have said, Castle Doctrine, self-defense in my own home, people broke my window and broke in, fear for my life. However, because he basically baited them and set the whole thing up to murder someone and then shot them in the face, finishing them off, he was convicted of murder and received two life sentences. There was an episode of the True Crime Fan Club podcast. It was called The Trap. It was a holiday bonus episode, which has the actual audio from those killings. So if you're a true crime buff like the rest of us and you want to hear it, definitely check out that episode. Let's get back to the case of Elisha Baxter. There was a pretrial hearing where Elisha testified, Mr. B testified, the person who filmed the video, which you've heard some clips from, testified along with the police officer who investigated, is probably too strong a word to use, who was in charge of the investigation, who did not speak to a single one of the men that were standing feet away from the incident, testified, and the medical examiner testified. So at the end of the discussion about the victim being found still clutching the knife on his back and the gunshot wounds that he sustained, the severe injuries that Elisha sustained from being stabbed in the chest and the arm as he tried to flee, and the woman that filmed the video, I'm going to call her Ms. A., who incidentally told police she didn't know anything, didn't see anything when they first questioned her because she was on probation and had a warrant out and was certain that if she spoke to them, they would figure out who she was and arrest her. So she didn't speak to them initially, only after she was arrested for the outstanding warrant and a probation violation, Elisha's attorney made their case. And I'm going to read... I'm going to read that to you. May it please the court. Judge, I believe that based upon all the evidence that has been presented, it has been demonstrated that Mr. Baxter was a victim of lethal and deadly force that was introduced without any legal justification. Most important of that is based upon the evidence that the video shows, as well as based upon the evidence that was presented by Mr. Baxter himself as well as Mr. B. And remember, Mr. B is just what we're calling the other person involved until I <clears throat> speak to him and hopefully get his participation. But if not, we'll continue calling him Mr. B. And based upon the testimony, truth be told of Ms. A, what happened in this situation was clearly when the victim, Mr. Baxter, and Mr. B joined the other guys that were already there. All of them knew each other. Even the argument by the state has been that this was a fight, even though the video shows not much of a fight, if anything. But what the video shows very clearly is that you had a group full of guys underneath that tree in the swale area, the grass area. There were discussions. There may 
even have been some arguments or things that were being said. You can't hear that. And obviously, because you can't hear it, you can't see that. But the crucial point is at the time that the victim decided to introduce deadly force, he had no legal justification, period. There's no question about that. The video evidence supports that. The evidence that's been presented is uncontroverted on that. And the fact that my client, as the court observed, was stabbed more than four times and critically injured to the point that when he went to one hospital, he had to be airlifted to regional trauma where he was in critical condition and almost died. There is no question about that. Now, the law is, so therefore, on the issue of whether or not he did have a right to confront deadly force, not that been threatened to be used again, but in fact that had been used against him. And based upon the fact that he heard and observed and the video shows in the testimony from Mr. B is after Mr. Baxter has been stabbed, then the victim then turns to Mr. B and said, you two, you're next. But it doesn't stop. The video shows that Mr. B is now running for his life. Not only is he running for his life, zigzagging, trying to avoid having the same thing that happened to Mr. Baxter happen to him, This whole thing happened within seconds as shown by the video. It's not a situation where there is a stop and then there are hours later. This was a continuation, a continuation. And so what Mr. Baxter did when he observed that Mr. B's life was in danger, suffered the same fate that happened to him. He had every right to go get deadly force to match the deadly force that had been illegally introduced by the victim. He had every right then to defend others as well as what he did. The video shows without a doubt, you see the individuals. The state tried to argue that Mr. B was not, that the victim was not running after Mr. B, but the video shows him running. He's even zigzagging that Mr. B, the the reason why he ran, because he didn't have a weapon. He didn't want the same thing to happen. He felt his life was in danger. So that evidence has not been refuted by the state. We have established without a doubt, and this is important for the court to understand, Mr. Baxter has established without a doubt that deadly force was introduced and used on him without any legal basis. Now, did they stand here and suggest that because the two of them, they were going to fight, or even if they were engaged in a fight, the law is very simple and very clear. A person cannot introduce deadly force unless deadly force has been used against that person. We have established that without a doubt. We have also established the fact that no one has been able to contradict the fact that the danger continued as the victim then pursued Mr. B. Not only were they not able to refute it, first of all, the video shows it. Other than that, there had to be the only other person would be Mr. B. He testified. None of the other people testified. All of them observed that. So therefore, when Mr. Baxter went to go get the gun to run after the, pers- after the pursuit that was going on, that's a continuation. The law says he doesn't have an obligation to retreat. That law has been changed a long time ago. He had the right to stand his ground and use the same force that had been used on him. Nobody saw what happened around the corner, not one witness. There's been no video of this, evidence of it, no witness testified about what happened behind the house. But what you do have is that is uncontroverted is that my client said that when he went down there, the victim still came at him with the knife. Now, how do you know that's true? Two ways. He testified about it and nobody controverted it. And even when the deceased died, he is still clutching the same knife. And that is no ordinary knife. That is a special knife. That ain't no blade. That ain't no butter knife. That's an M-Tech knife that he was still clutching. At the time of his death, there has been no evidence by anyone to contradict what Mr. Baxter stated happened behind the house. But what corroborates what Mr. Baxter is saying that happened behind the house, because there's no video, 
What is corroborating is the fact that the picture of the state's evidence shows the victim still clutching the same deadly weapon in his hand that he had used against Mr. Baxter. He came this close to losing his life. That's what the evidence shows, and we have met our burden in accordance to the law based upon that. That's what this case is about. I can't tell you how many cases where police officers said they shoot to kill when they perceive a danger. Case law, when upheld, when they turned out they were wrong, the person that they shot 6, 8, 10, 102 times didn't even have a gun. But every case that said the minute that they perceived the danger that the person may have had a dangerous weapon, that they had every right to take that person's life. And I'm talking about cases that we know. In this circuit, when a person has been fired upon a hundred times, shot bullets, and every single time has been ruled that the shooting was justified. Recently, there have been cases that said that even if a police officer, you're still a human, you're still a citizen, you're still a person, and you have a right to stand your ground and use deadly force. So in this case, my client had every right to do what he did, not based upon a false perceived threat, but based upon living proof that he was stabbed, not three, not one. He was stabbed four times. Even when he was trying to get away, he was stabbed. So I think based upon the evidence that this court has heard and seen, let's talk about the credibility very quickly, because the state really had two witnesses. Let's talk about Ms. A. First of all, I would not give her she has she doesn't even have a mustard seed of credibility she's an admitted liar she's shown she has no respect for the system the only reason she's up here now is because she's trying to save her tail she's trying to save her butt right now that's it she admitted that she lied to the police she admitted that she lied that day i asked her very simple questions have you ever used a false name in your life no she lied under oath right in the police report bold as can be she's a liar period but you know what she said remember when i asked her whose voice is that saying, oh, he stabbed him. Oh, he stabbed him. He stabbed him. Did he Did he stab her? Run his ass over. I said, isn't that your voice? You said, no, no, it's not me. There's only two of us. That's her. I recognize her voice. I know her voice. But it's obvious because her whole testimony showed she has a bias for whatever reason. She illustrated a bias during her deposition. She illustrated it today to the point that the court had to ask the questions. She's biased. I don't know why. It doesn't matter. But I do know that her bias was has colored what she wants. Because if you listen to the person that is saying he stabbed him, he stabbed him, but she didn't see the stabbing. But she said, he stabbed him. Oh my God, he stabbed him. And then as my client is running to the car, she sees it knowing he stabbed him. He stabbed you, run his ass over. That's a totally different person than the person that they walked into this courtroom today. Totally different. Why? I don't know. I have no common sense. I have been around here long enough to know that she has not given unbiased, unobjective testimony. No. So therefore, what you left with? Once you pull those two out, you're left with two things. You're left with the testimony of Mr. B., He's walking in to point everybody out. He was there. He was as much a victim. That's why he was listed as a state witness. And you heard from Mr. Baxter. More importantly, what you saw, and thank God you saw it, the video. If there ever was a case, and we've had a lot of cases on the issue of stand your ground, the whole purpose of that is for cases like this. It's supposed to try for when you can use deadly force. If so, after being confronted with, it wasn't a threat, it was a reality. And the most important thing that you saw, all of this happened within seconds, bam, 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 from the stabbing to the confrontation, all of that happened within seconds. Based upon the evidence, I believe that it would be a miscarriage of justice for the court to deny under these circumstances, our motion. And as you already know, that's not what happened. It went to court and Elisha was found guilty of second degree murder and sentenced to 32 years. And we will get into more of that in the future. 
For my next episode, I'm pretty excited. We have an interview with a member of law enforcement about self-defense. And that's going to be super interesting because we in this country have a firm belief that we have a right to defend ourselves. And that includes the use of deadly force. One thing that I have mentioned already is the very disparate access to self-defense in our system. The data that shows that if you shoot someone of color, you're much more likely to be able to use stand your ground and not be charged than if than the other way around. And that's certainly what I'm finding as season one with Destry McKinney, which was a self-defense case, who is serving life without parole. And now Elisha Baxter, who has a 32-year sentence for self-defense. Hope you've enjoyed this. This is an ongoing story. And oh my goodness, if you were one of the people that saw this happen, I would love to speak to you. If you have any information at all, anything you'd like to tell me, uh, please reach out. You can find me at my email, which is circpod at gmail.com. That's C-I-R-C-P-O-D at gmail.com. Everyone stay safe out there. Wear your masks. COVID is going crazy. Wear your seatbelts. Don't forget the kids in the backseat. Stay safe. We'll see you next time.